point. So glad that you have chosen to be here, chosen to uh, uh, join us online whenever you are watching. And uh, we are concluding our three-week series called Prove It. We're answering three important questions that are really, it's been around a while and, it's, and, and some of them have really surfaced lately. The questions that we've been answering is, does God exist? Like seriously, does, is there a God? And the last week was, is Christianity anti-science? And today we're going to be talking about, is the Bible really God's word? Like seriously? You see, whether you're a skeptic here today, or whether you're a seeker, or whether you're a believer, I think these questions are helpful for you and the answers as well. In our culture today, more than in my, my lifetime, and when it comes to the Bible, there is a loud roar from the scoffers about God's word. That it's an ancient book filled with myths. It's been proven time and time again to be false. The Bible has changed so many times over the centuries. It's not reliable. And the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. I've seen it in classroom settings. I've seen it online. I've seen it on YouTube. I've seen it everywhere in our culture. And it's funny when people say, I believe the Bible online, you should see the comments, the hostile comments about that. How could anybody believe that to be true? So if you ever um, are asked these questions by someone or these statements by someone about this declarative, you know, their opinion of what the Bible is or isn't, um, I, I would encourage you to calmly ask two questions in return. First question would be, how did you come to your conclusions? Because often they've heard it from a professor or they watched something. So how did you come to your conclusion? The second question to calmly ask them is, what evidence do you have to prove your conclusions? That might be a helpful thing to ask. Now, these questions, these accusations about the Bible have, has caused many, many people when faced in front of a teacher or a professor or, or a paper they have to write or a book they need to read, they just start backing away. Like, I don't know the answers. Maybe I have been wrong in growing up in church. The, the, the apostle Peter writes, and in context, um, in context is in the context of accusations when accusations are, are, are coming to Christians. In chapter 3, 1 Peter, uh, he writes this. Do not fear, he's quoting from Isaiah, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, unquote. He continues, but in your hearts reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Don't miss this, especially today online. But to do this with what? Gentleness and respect. If you respond to someone, I'm talking to believers here. You know, a little, give them my little soapbox. If you respond to someone, whatever accusation they make about Jesus or the Bible, whatever, if you respond not with gentleness and not with respect, Shame on you. You are, you are wrong. <laughs> Stop it. You're a bad advertisement for Jesus. Bad advertisement for Jesus. 
By the way, I'm going to show a bunch of verses today. I'm going to bounce all over. So I normally have you turn to a passage. We're not going to do that today. I'm going to, they're all going to be up here so I can unpack them. But Peter would not encourage you when someone makes a, a strong accusation against the Bible for believers. Uh, Peter would not say, here's how you respond. You just say, well, I just believe the Bible is true. Now, that may be a true statement, but that is not an answer. And that is not a reason for the hope that you have. Because if they come back and say, but I don't believe it's the word of God, you're, you're, you're dead in the water. Paul would say, no, you need to be prepared. You have coworkers, you have family members, you have uh, students that go to school with you, you have you know, people in your lives. Part of the reason for this series, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is to help prepare you that there are answers, there's great answers. To be prepared and to give a reason. Reason is logic, uh, research, uh, you know, all sorts of things of evidence, data, so that you can answer and give a reason. For me, I do not have a blind faith. I have a reasoned faith. So that a hope that I have that Jesus truly is the Son of God, I have a reasoned faith based upon research, data, historical documents, and evidence. The reason why I believe the Bible is truly the Word of God is based upon I have a reason. I'm going to walk you through that today, some of that today. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the central point. Again, I'm talking to to skeptics, to seekers, and also believers. Central point is this, the Bible is unique, meaning one of a kind, over any other book because of its supernatural qualities. The Bible is unique, it's one of a kind, because of its supernatural qualities. Now some of you might be thinking, well, a pastor's supposed to say that it's unique. A pastor's supposed to say it stands out. Well, what if I showed you a quote from someone who is not a follower of Jesus? I think I'll do that right now. This doctor, this professor, this author um, has a quote, and he refers to himself as an, an agnostic atheist. I'm really still trying to figure out that meaning of that. I'm not sure if I know that I know that there is no God. Okay, but that's, that's, that's how he views himself, as an agnostic atheist. Dr. Bart Ehrman says this, whether you are a believer, all right, fundamentalist, evangelical, moderate, liberal, or whether you are a non-believer, the Bible is the most significant book in the history of civilization, unquote. That carries some weight. He, he has multiple PhDs on the New Testament, on early church history. I'll come back later at the end about another thing that he said. So why would I say that I believe that the Bible is unique other than any other book in history because of its supernatural qualities? Well, I'm going to build a case for you today. It's kind of like building blocks. First one is because of its divine origin. Because of its divine origin. Now your notes start at the top and go down, but on the TV it won't go from the bottom up, all right? Don't want to fake some literal people out, all right? Um, because of its origin. 
Now here's what the Bible says about its origin. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. Here's the right way to respond. Here's the right way to live according to God. All scripture is God-breathed. That's where we get the word inspiration. The, word is, the, the Bible is inspired. And the Greek means God breathed it. He used human authors, but God is the author. He told them what he wanted to say. Now, specifically and technically, what I'm saying is that the original manuscripts were God-inspired. From those original manuscripts, there have been thousands of copies made. We'll talk a little bit more about that if there's any errors in, in the copies. What makes the Bible unique, one of a kind, is that it is inspired by God. Now, you may be here today and go, I don't believe that. Okay, well, we're just going to keep going. The next building block is what makes it unique, a spiritual, uh, supernatural quality, is its divine theme. There is a theme throughout the entire Bible. Now, let me, again, this is the uniqueness about the Word of God. In the Bible, there's 66 books, individual books, or a lot of them letters, all right, that, that were written over the course of 1,500 years. That's unheard of. It was written in three languages, ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the New Testament Greek. Now, what makes it unique, one, that, that's kind of crazy, but of the 40 different writers over a span of 1,500 years, they were different in every way, different in personality, different in giftedness, gift, dif, different in experience. We had kings and prophets and shepherds and tax collectors and fishermen and f physicians. I mean, different from all sorts of walks of life, but here's the divine theme. There's one theme. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, the theme is God's redemptive story for mankind. That man in the Garden of Eden, Eden sinned against God, separated from God, and here's God's plan to restore that through, the, through all through Scripture. That is unique. That is absolutely unique. There is no other book in this category. The third uh, uh, supernatural quality is its divine protection. Divine protection. There is no other book in history that has been burned, banned, shamed, and shunned like the Word of God. It has been outlawed. People have died for having copies of it even till this, to this day. And the Bible stands alone, really completely alone, when it comes under the historical and artifact, um, artifacts critiques that ancient literature gets critiqued by. The Bible stands alone in its auth uh, you know, auth authentication process. It's too early for me to have long words. The Bible has some of the oldest copies and manuscripts and artifacts, all right, the, some of the oldest, and also, by far, it has the most copies of ancient literature compared. The greatest archaeologist's find in human history happened in 1947 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, these are even people who don't even believe Jesus in the Bible. They're saying this is the greatest find in archaeology ever. See, before this find in 1947, uh, the book of Isaiah was laughed at and scoffed, said, okay, Isaiah surely wrote this book, or someone named Isaiah wrote what happened after Jesus because of how accurate all these things were. So obviously he was there or after Jesus, and then he went and wrote the book of Isaiah. Where the book of Isaiah, according to theologians, is 700 years before Jesus came. But it was laughed at, scoffed at, like there's no way, there's no way. Too many exact, you know, things about it that obviously had to happen after Jesus was here. Well, in 1947, out in the (laughs) desert, uh, uh, southeast of Jerusalem, near En Gedi, and by the Dead Sea, a shepherd happened to throw rocks into a cave and heard a crack, and they went and investigated it, and there were all kinds of copies of the Old Testament. And there's many copies of the full text of Isaiah, a bunch of copies of the whole book of Isaiah. And they said, these are at least 300 years old, I mean, prior to Jesus, not 300 from 1947, before Jesus, at least 300 years old. Absolutely crazy. It was the perfect location with the perfect climate to preserve copies of the Hebrew Bible and, and, and surface at the perfect time now with the technology to continue it. See, you can go and see, I mean, years ago he took uh, one of my kids and the Tolls, I think the Young Kai kids, uh, I think it was, we all went to Seattle when the Dead Sea Scrolls came, came around and they were this massive display and you could see it. Divine protection. Now, I'm gonna spend a little more time on this next one. It's, divi- it's divine re- Reliability. It is reliable. It's divine reliability. So there are, and I've, I've read, heard, and watched, there's this thing in, you know, called factual discrepancies when it comes to God's word that are put together, written up by, um, you know, p- professors or, or some books or online of here's all the, you know, the errors in Scripture, the Bible. Bible can't be the Word of God because the, there's all these conflicting statements. They call, they're called factual discrepancies. So let me give you some examples from that list from skeptics. Say the Bible. How can the Bible be the God's Word if the, all these things are clearly wrong? Here's one. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes this about Jesus that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12. And the authors are saying, see, Paul got it wrong. Paul blew it. This cannot be God's word, all right, to get this something this easy so wrong because everybody knows if Jesus died and rose again that the 12 no longer was 12 because Judas died before the resurrection, and Matthias was voted in to take his place after Jesus ascended back to heaven. So this is wrong. How can you trust in the word of God? This is so, so wrong. Now, let me give you a couple answers for that, a couple of reasons. 
Ancient literature uses figure of speech. Modern literature uses figure of speech. You and I use figures of speech all the time. Now let me ask a question, you gotta be honest because you're in church. How many of you are Seahawk fans and you refer to yourself as part of being of the 12? Could I see your hands, okay? See, wait a second, how could that be? There's more than 12 of you. There's more than 12. Where you go, no, no, it's not a literal number, it's we're using a number as a name. The apostle John does this, talking about Jesus after he rose again. John writes, he goes, now, now Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the, what, 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, meaning when he came to see them after his resurrection. John's using a figure of speech giving no, a number, they're talking about the name, all right, the, the number being used as a name. How many of you have ever heard of the Big Ten Conference? Okay, Big Ten Conference. They had 10 schools. Then years ago, they went to 11. They kept the name Big Ten, but you see the 11 in the logo? Last year, there were 14 teams in the Big Ten. Next year, there's 18 teams in the Big Ten. Is that, are you going to say, that, that is inaccurate? That, that, how can you follow them? They're using a number as a name, as a figure of speech. That's what the 12 refer to. Another option that Paul probably had is that Matthias did see the resurrection Savior, and you could not be an apostle if you didn't see the re a resurrected Christ. I don't think Paul got it wrong. Here's another factual discrepancy that is used against the Bible. Is that, did Judas die twice? Because in Matthew, Matthew writes that Judas, he went out and hung himself. Then Luke writes in Acts 1.8 that Judas fell headlong and his body spilled out on the ground. Sorry to say that before lunch. I mean, they clearly got it wrong. These facts don't line up. There's this phrase called supplementation, meaning new information that doesn't bring contradiction. He did hang himself. Matthew wrote that. That's a factual statement. Luke, talking to other eyewitnesses, heard that then he fell and all of his insides came on the outside. Well, the branch could have broke, the rope could have broke, both can be true. There's new information in Acts that is not a contradiction. Then another factual discrepancy is Paul gets his own story wrong. How can the word of God be God's word, or how can the Bible be the word of God if Paul can't get his own story straight? Because early in Acts Chapter 9, he's describing his story on the road to Damascus, going to go hunt up Christians and, and, and kill them or arrest them because, he, you know, because of their blasphemy. And then on the road, he was interrupted by a bright light from heaven, knocks Paul to the ground. Then there was a, a voice being spoken, and the men with Paul heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. They, they saw no one. And then later, Paul tells his story again. He says, well, they did not hear 
Wait, all right. They heard but did not see. And then down here he says, uh, they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Paul, and the, clearly this is a contradiction. This is why Paul can't even get his own story straight. Well, we see this all the time of someone who heard but didn't hear. This happens every time I preach on Sunday morning. <laughs> you heard me, but you didn't hear me. Wives, have your husband heard you but didn't hear you? All right. Parents, do your teenagers ever hear you but not hear you? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. In the New Testament, it was written in Greek. Very descriptive. That's why I believe God chose it. Very descriptive, so know exactly what we're talking about. The word here in the Greek has two meanings. To hear and to understand. I believe these guys, they heard someone talking, but they couldn't figure out. They didn't understand what was going on because I can't see anybody talking, but I hear them. And they did not understand what Jesus was saying. Why are you persecuting me, Paul or Saul at the time? See, the Bible has very detailed accounts. It mentions names, titles, cities, nations. And for centuries, a lot, of the, a lot of names in the Bible and titles and cities and nations couldn't find. So skeptics over the centuries said, <laughs> the Bible says that there's, there's Hittites, there's a nation of Hittites. There's no Hittites. And then they find in archaeology and then they find Oh, the, the nation of Hittites, and they describe them. It confirms what Scripture said. For centuries, the scoffers were saying, there's no Pontius Pilate. There, there was never, there's no document about Pontius Pilate. And about 20 years ago, they'd found a Nadug, and they found big, big old limestone, flipped it over, and there is Pontius Pilate, you know, and his, his role in that region. Time and time again, I mean, there's hundreds of examples that archaeology finds out later. There was a person named this. There was a city over here. There was a nation. There was a title over and over again. In fact, in Israel today, it's almost like every three months there is a major find um, as they're unearthing and going deeper of confirming what Scripture has mentioned. Then when it comes to Bible translations, you got to understand this. The original manuscripts were God-breathed, they're inspired, and I believe inerrant because God doesn't make mistakes. But then God allowed human, human beings to then make copies of that. Now, why don't we have all these ancient manuscripts? A lot of them faded away and you know, tablets dusted away with papyrus and stuff. I personally believe God allowed the, 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 manu, the original manuscripts to just kind of go into history because human beings worship things they shouldn't worship. And they make idols of things that they shouldn't. That's why God hid the body of Moses. Because what would human beings do? Find up where Moses where Moses was buried, and it becomes a shrine and an idol. But there are so many copies. 
that you put them all together, and these there's experts that with multiple PhDs behind their names of going look at all these copies, 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 copies. They say the same thing. 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 Oh, there's a spelling there. Oh, there's there's not a thousand men that um, David went into battle with. It, and all these other copies, 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 all said ten thousand. So there are scribal errors. Why? Because they're human beings that, that missed it. And all these scholars are saying it's like 99 plus point something percent accurate based upon so many copies that are exactly the same. And each of these scholars will say this. If there's a spelling change or a new measurement that we measure things today that they didn't measure it that way, all these little like, oh, there's an error, there's, there's, there's contradictions. In the text, in the context, nothing changed. The event didn't change. The outcome didn't change. The people didn't change. The story is still accurate. Dr. Nelson, I don't know if it's Gluck or Gleck, um, he says that of the 24,000 ancient manuscript copies, copies, 24,000 copies of the New Testament, there's no real change. There's no change at all. He says this, there is more evidence for the reliability of the text of the New Testament than there is for any 10 pieces of literature put together. It is better in better textual shape than the 37 plays of William Shakespeare, which were written a mere 300 years ago after the invention of the printing press. It is so reliable. It is the most reliable ancient literature in human history. Now, Dr. Bart Ehrman wrote a, bo a book that said, look at all these textual errors and gain lots of money. Then he was confronted by this Dr. Nelson and they had a conversation. After the conversation, because you can, you can write a book to make money, but then when you write something that your own peers from your own their own lane, you know, correct and confront and stuff. After that correction and confront, uh, confrontation and saying, Here, here's, here's the truth, here's all the things, Dr. Bart Ehrman said, I agree the reliability of the Bible, of the New Testament is on solid ground. And that's an athe uh, agnostic atheist who said that. The Bible is unique. The next example of the supernatural qualities of the Word of God is its divine prophecies. Now, I could have three Sundays, five Sundays on examples. I'm only going to give a few today. Um, the, the first one I'm going to give, God was so specific in the book of Ezekiel. God was so upset at the city of Tyre, all right, T-Y-R-E. It was right on the, the coast of Lebanon. Um, it was wealthy at the time of the writing. It was, it was this 
this huge, you know, trade market, but this was the area that uh, Queen Jezebel grew up in and, and grabbed all her Baal worship and brought it down to Israel and, and corrupted the nation of Israel with the idolatry of Baal. That's the, that's the area. God was, God was saying it was so wicked and they're so arrogant and the, the evil was just rampant. And here's some specific com, uh, prophecies that God told Ezekiel to write. First one in Chapter 26, verse 4, he says, God speaking, I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. I will, I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Ten verses later, he gives more specifics. I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. Don't forget that. I'll come back to that. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, has spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Verse 19, more specifics. And when I make you a desolate city, when I bring the ocean depths over you and its vast waters cover you. This prophecy was given in 592 before Christ, B.C. As we talked about in a previous series, those numbers count from up to down to the birth of Christ. 592 BC, this prophecy was given. Six years later, Babylon invades Lebanon area and the city of Tyre and begins to seize it. And the city leaders go from the mainline capital of Tyre to the island capital of Tyre. What, is, what am I talking about? Right off the coast, about a half of mile into the Mediterranean Sea, there was this big rock that they also had the city capital. So as Babylon came and started, you know, sieging and stopping everything and commerce and water and food and all this, the leaders went out to the island city. And it was almost like mocking Babylon, like, you can't get us. And they had a way of hindering ships to get out there. And Babylon left. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great was coming through the area. And he was wiping out everyone. And he came to Tyre and the mainline city, um, he started to destroy it. And the city leaders, again, did what their forefathers did. They went out to the, to the island capital and, and kind of taunted uh, Alexander the Great. Like, yeah, once again, you can't come get us. Alexander the Great and all his anger and arrogance completely destroyed the mainline city. They said he stripped it down to the bare rock. And he took all the rubble and all the, the stones from the building and made a land bridge out to the island city. This is an old picture of, you see the land bridge. It was once water, and out here, now it's connected. And he marched across the land bridge and completely destroyed the ancient island capital of Tyre. And it hasn't been rebuilt in fact, a large portion of it, years later, sank and water overtook it. And you can still see in the Mediterranean waters the prophecy of God coming true. And this whole area today is fish, fishing is a main industry. And if you would go to that rock, this is what you would find. Piles and piles of fish nets drying out. See, when God gives predictions, he's pretty specific. 
And God's predictions always don't just happen and fulfilled in one instance. God's predictions kind of takes time to one by one, all the boxes getting checked. I'll give you another example. Time, I got a little bit of time, good. There's so many prophecies of the coming Messiah. Here's just a few very specific prophecies, not like Nostradamus who just kind of generalize things and people can find whatever answers they want. The word of God is very specific. When it comes to the Messiah, in Micah it said, this is the place he will be born, Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus was born. It also says in the little book in the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah, that the Messiah would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And that's exactly what Judas was given. In the book of Isaiah, there's all kinds of prophecies. Let me focus on one. That the, the manner of burial of the Messiah, he said he would be numbered with the wicked and buried with rich in his death. Now when people were crucified at the time of Christ, in the Jewish religious laws, that they kind of made up. No Jew could be buried with a proper barrier if they were crucified because they represented wickedness. So what they would do is they would take bodies off the, the crosses and go to the Valley of Gehenna where there was like constant, like their big trash area and they would throw dead bodies onto the burn pile. So he was counted as being wicked. But Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, went and asked permission to take the body of Christ. And, and Joseph said, I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to bury Jesus in my tomb. Joseph was very rich and had a tomb cut out that had never been used. And that's where the body of Jesus was laid. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did that, put him there in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. If you look at uh, Psalm 22, there's 12 prophecies that were fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ. 12. Well, that's easy. They, you know, crucifixion you know, happens. Not when it was written. I mean, as no evil person yet thought up crucifixion yet. But you read through Psalm 22 and just look at how many times, very specific of what was fulfilled at the death of Christ. Bible, the most unique book ever in human history. Why is it unique? I believe it's because it has supernatural qualities. I'm gonna add one to your list for note takers. Another supernatural quality is its divine power. It's divine power. Listened um, a couple days ago, again, my notes were done two weeks prior and I was listening um, and I, I saw this lady on YouTube give her testimony, and she is a professor at a university in the Midwest, and she said she, she grew up, um, her whole family um, were atheists, and she, goes, she considered my, herself an atheist, and she said, going down the kind of the intellectual path, she said, I had this view of the Bible as anti-intellectual, and anybody who believed the Bible were anti-intellectual, and it was dumb, it made no sense, and she mocked and scoffed at it. And then one day she said, I'm mocking and scoffing the Bible as being anti-intellectual, and I've never read it. 
I should probably read it to understand. After all, she said, it's the number one bestseller of all time. And she started in the book of Proverbs. And as she goes, as I'm reading the book of Proverbs, I was astounded. There's so much wisdom in this little book. It's not what I thought. There's a lot of wisdom here. Helpful wisdom. Then she thought to herself, well, there's all this conversation about Jesus. I've never really read about Jesus. So she went to the New Testament and read the New Jesus and surrendered her life to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. That's power, divine power. And I could tell you thousands and thousands of stories of the word of God having unique supernatural power to change hardened, broken hearts and change them completely at salvation. So for me, the bottom line for me, why do I believe the word of God is truly God's word? All the things that I told you, I'm gonna end with this. The reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God is because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. He affirmed creation, he affirmed the flood, he affirmed Pharaoh, he affirmed miracles. That's one. And two, Jesus predicted and fulfilled things in the New Testament about himself, about the temple, and they all happened. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Anyone who promises that they will die and rise from the dead and pulls it off, I buy everything they say. And Jesus' death and his resurrection that's what the, the resurrection is what launched Christianity. Not a book, but an event, a supernatural event. And Jesus believed that the scriptures were God's word. And that's where I stand. Would you pray with me? God, you know um, all, all of us where we land, whether we're skeptics, not sure about all this, have, have heard things and have built our own conclusions about Christianity, God, the Bible, Lord, they're, they're skeptics in our, in our midst and watching. And I'm grateful for that. Well, I, I also, you know the seekers who they don't know. They don't, they don't believe it yet, but they're at least searching you. Lord, you say that if people seek you, they will find you. Lord, may, may many find you. Like this prof, uh, professor who had a one opinion about you and your word. And that was an avid follower of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray also that this series would be an help and encouragement to believers that we don't have a blind faith, we have a reasoned faith. Supernatural things happen and fulfilled because your word is your word. Lord, we ask that you would help and bless the teaching of your word today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We say, amen. Amen.